Good morning, and greetings in Jesus' name this morning. We're glad to be here. This place again at this time, um, beginning of a new year. Turn with me to um, Ezra 9 this morning for a uh, message. As we stand here on the cusp of a new year, there's a, a verse here that I think summarizes somewhat what the passage of time is to us. Ezra 9 and verse 8, I'm going to read that um, that verse right now. And now for a little space, grace hath been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail in his holy place that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. For we were bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia, to give us a surviving, to set up the house of our God, and to repair the desolations thereof, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now that's taking two verses out of a much, much longer context here. The entire book of Ezra uh, is a is a story of people coming back from bondage out of Babylon, back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the wall and the um, and the temple there. I've entitled the message this morning, A Little Space of Grace. So just a brief history of the Jews. We, we, we remember how that the, uh, the after the dividing of the kingdoms after Solomon, we had the, the north and the south kingdom. And we have the North Kingdom slipping into a repetitive mode of sin quicker than the Southern Kingdom. They both did it, but it was faster in the North. And so along comes the time where the Assyrian came, Assyrian king came and, and carried the, the entire Northern body of Israel into captivity, dispersed them among the, the neighbors there in, in those, in the lands those days, and the Northern Kingdom never returned to their homeland. It's, we, it's somewhat known as the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel. And um, there was some settling that happened in Samaria, and you know the mixed marriages and so on, and that's why in Jesus' time the Samaritans were such a hated, a hated uh, bunch of people because of the, of the mixed multitude there in that particular part of the world. Well, roughly, I don't know, what is it, 100, 150 years, sometime later, the, the same thing happens to Judah. Only this time, the king of Babylon carries them captive. They're there for 70 years. And after the 70 years have transpired, there's a remnant that comes back and uh, begins to restore the, the, uh, the land here of Israel, begins to build the wall and, um, and the temple again. So in, uh, in the first part of this book, we have a man by the name of Zerubbabel who leads the first band of pilgrims back to this land and begins to rebuild. And later we have a man by the name of Ezra who wrote this book that comes back. And sometime later we have Nehemiah coming back. And so under these three different rulers or leaders, we have, we have people coming out of, um, out of Babylon back to, um, back to Israel to rebuild. So if you if you turn back to chapter 2, just to try to get a little context here, if you turn back to chapter 2 of Ezra, you will have these uh, excited group that Zerubbabel brings back. And if you read verses uh, 68 to 70, this is a, kind of a summary of, of these people. 
And some of the chiefs of the fathers, when they were come to the house of the Lord, which is at Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to set it up in his place. They gave after their ability under the treasure of the work three score and one thousand drams of gold, five thousand pounds of silver, and one hundred priest garments. So the priests and the Levites and some of the people and the singers and the porters and the Nethanims dwelt in their cities and all Israel in their cities. So we have a very excited group of people, a very... Um, uh, people that happily gave, uh, I don't, I did not research this, how much, um, all of this would have amounted to, but it sounds like a lot of stuff. Gold and silver and, and priest garments and so on. So they, uh, they began to, uh, to build in, uh, verse, I'm sorry, chapter 3 and verse 1. It talks about how that they were come together, they gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. So it speaks of the unity and the the focus that these people had on the rebuilding project. So uh, if you drop down to verse 11 in chapter 3, you have how that the, the building of the temple here brought real joy to a lot of the crowd, but it says that the ancients didn't feel that that excited about it. It said they wept with a loud voice, but many shouted for joy, and it seems that the the remembrance of the first house is what the old men were remembering, and and they saw the inferiority of this new temple as compared to the old one, and it and it actually brought them to uh, to tears. Actually, it says. But anyway, um, things continued. They were they were finally in their homeland, and uh, things were getting back to where they belonged, and they they felt really good about this. But in chapter four. We, um, we have some bad news. We have some people, some of their enemies, their adversaries, it's calling them. They came to Zerubbabel and they said, you know, what about you let us help build too? And, um, you know, they, they, they tried to make the case that they're, they were actually brethren of, uh, of these people here in Judah. But, um, Zerubbabel would have nothing to do with it. And so when they sensed that Zerubbabel wouldn't, they decided, well, we'll just make things hard for these people. So they wrote a letter to the uh, king of Persia, um, whose name was Artaxerxes, and uh, they told them that if this group of people were allowed to continue rebuilding, that it was going to cause nothing but problems for the, the ruling parties over in, in, the, uh, in the Persian kingdom. They said, you know, these people are known not to pay their taxes and to rise up and, and uh, rebel against their uh, rulers and so on. And they said, if you look and you, and you, and you research this, you'll find out that, that what we're telling you is true. And so the king did that. And he said, oh yeah, that is true. So he quickly writes a letter and he says, you stop the building right now. And so they did that. They, they quit building the temple and the wall. And then in chapter five, you have, uh, verse one, it says, then the prophets Haggai and Zechariah prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel, even unto them, and I'll, I won't read the rest of it, but basically if you would read the, the prophet, the books of Haggai and Zechariah, you would find exactly this message. It was a message of, you people need to complete the job that you have started. You're living in fancy houses and you're doing, uh, you're, you're, you're living a good life and yet the wall and the temple lay ruined. And so it was a, it was a real urging for the people to get back to work. So, um, as soon as they started back to work, well of course the enemies, quickly um, tried to stop it again. But this time, a letter was written to uh, um, to Darius, 
And Darius finds out that indeed these children of Israel had been commissioned to go and do this rebuilding. So he tells the enemies, look, you let them go ahead and do what they need to do. Let them alone. And uh, as a matter of fact, he uh, he said that I'm actually behind this and I will donate some goods to make sure that this that this project continues. And so in the latter part of chapter 6, we have the uh, the building complete and um, happy times are there. And we have what seems as a real combination of, of good things happening. And then between chapters 6 and 7, we have uh, 60 years elapsing. So just think with this, we're now complete with the temple and there's 60 years. Um, that's a fairly long time. And in those 60 years is when the book of Esther takes place, if we're, if we're going chronologically here. So if you're reading the Bible chronologically in between 6 and 7 is when you would want to read the book of Esther. Well, in that 60 years, uh, after that 60 years, I should say, Ezra and his friends decided they want to go back and lead a, a group back to Jerusalem and, and um, continue to help the, with the rebuilding. And so he asked the king for for his permission, the king gives it to him, and the king actually offered to give them um, uh, uh, some soldiers to guard them along the way. But the interesting part is, Ezra says, I, I was ashamed to ask the the, uh, the king for that kind of help because I had bragged up on God so much that for me to to accept that offer would make it look like I didn't trust God anymore. So he said, no, I'm not going to take that part of it. But what he did do is he got his friends together in uh, chapter 8 and verse 21 and 22, and they proclaimed a fast there by the river of Ahava, it says, that we might flick ourselves before our God to seek him a right way for us and for our little ones and for our substance. For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way. Because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of God is upon all them for good that seek him. But his power and wrath is against all that forsake him. So they leave the, the horses and the soldiers at home. And they, um, they through faith and trust in God, they, they journey over to Jerusalem. Well, he no more than gets to, uh, to Judah there, Jerusalem, in chapter 9. And he's met with some very sad news. He finds out that after 60 years that had elapsed between uh, chapter 6 and 7 there, that the leaders had become defiled and they were doing the abominations of the ancient peoples that God had driven out. And you can imagine Ezra's grief at this. They were, there was mixed marriages going on. Merely 60 years after the return of the first captives and the rebuilding of the wall, we have these people falling back into the very things that had taken them captive uh, before they had went captive. And Ezra finds this this news to be terrible, and he um, he can hardly have it. So to just get a little bit of context here, I'm going to read uh, verses, um, um, well, verse 2. Let's start at verse 2 of chapter 9. For they had taken of their daughter, for they had, sorry, for they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the people of the princes and rulers hath been chief in this trespass. And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked the hair off my head and of my beard and set down a stony. 
Then were assembled unto me every one that trembled at the word of the Lord of Israel because of the transgression of those who had been carried away. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose up with, from my heaviness. And having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God and said, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee. My God, for iniquities are increased over our heads, and our trespass is grown up into the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in great trespass unto this day, and for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hand of the kings of the land, to the sword and to captivity and to a spoil and to confusion of face as it is this day. And now for a little space, grace has been shown unto shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail in his holy place, that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. For we were bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage and hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the king of Persia to give us a reviving, to set up a house of our God and to repair desolations thereof and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments, which thou hast given, which thou hast commanded by the servants of the prophets, saying, The land unto which ye go to possess it is an unclean land with filthiness of people of the lands, with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to another with their uncleanness. Now therefore, give not your daughters unto their sons, neither take their daughters unto your sons, nor seek their peace or their wealth forever, that ye may be strong and eat of the good of the land and leave it for the inheritance of your children forever. And after all that is come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great trespass, seeing that thou, our God, hath punished us less than our iniquities deserve and has given us such deliverance as this, should we again break thy commandments and join in affinity with the people of these abominations? Wouldst not thou be angry with us until thou hast consumed us, so that there should be no remnant nor escaping? O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous, for we remain yet escaped. As it is in this day, behold, we are before thee in our trespasses, for we cannot stand before thee because of this. So Ezra realizes that they're this, the, these people that are, are a very crucial segment of time. They're right back where they deserved God's judgment again, and God had not yet doing, had not yet met out any kind of judgment upon this, and he's just pleading with God. He's like, I understand we have just this little space of grace to, to get this right, and he, he begs God to, to be merciful unto them, and, um, and so on. In chapter 10, then, it gives us the result of this little reviving that he talks about. And he realized where the, where the problem was, what the need was, and he immediately got to work, and he, he began to dissolve these unholy marriages and so on. And uh, it wasn't easy. What happened in chapter 10 was indeed very difficult. But, but Ezra realized that if there was going to be any reviving in this little space of grace, that there had to be some action. So I'd like to just apply this to our time here today a little bit. You know, we live what I would call our any segment of time you want to you want to pull out. We could call a little space of grace, right? I mean, our lives are a little space of grace. Who who of us have not experienced grace in our lives? 
And I would like us to look at the, the coming year, 2022, if you will, as another space of grace that God has given us to exercise righteousness in our generation. Grace, as fundamentally defined, is basically receiving a pass without getting a deserved penalty. That, that's grace in its fundamental essence. Um, and I'm sure any of you can remember some time in your life, I certainly hope you can anyway, where you received grace for something you did that you really should have got punished for. And, and for me, uh, a time that comes to mind for me is when I was in third grade, and we had a woods there at our school, uh, a little woods, and uh, sometimes us boys there would go up and play in this woods. And, and we were up there messing around in the woods one day. And um, the teacher decided to send the girls up to tell us to come back. Well, that was mistake number one. Because we questioned their authority from teacher to come up and tell us to come back to the room. So what did we do? We ignored it. Well, they indeed did have the authority from teacher to tell us to come down there. And we saw teacher coming up there. We knew we were in trouble. And I still remember that long walk between the woods and the school. And I knew that this this teacher, she knew how to use the paddle, and I knew that. And I knew that, that in her mind there was a there was some thoughts taking place, and they weren't good thoughts. And I was trembling in my shoes. And when we got back to school, she apparently decided that it would be good enough just for us not to have the rest of recess time rather than using the paddle. And I felt like I received grace. I felt like something could have happened that didn't, all right? So that, that always comes to my mind when I think of grace. You know, God has been in the grace-giving business for a long time, and Ezra was a student of the law. He knew that. He knew that Adam and Eve had really received grace when God had given them death. He knew that Cain had received grace. He knew that Esau had received grace. Noah found grace. Lot had received grace. And David had received grace. Nineveh had experienced grace. Think of all these people. I'm sure Ezra knew about these people. He knew about these events. He knew that God was somebody that was long on grace. And he was once more imploring God to extend grace to him and his people. 1 Timothy 1.14 says, And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. And I'm here to say, folks, this morning, that we also are recipients of the long grace of God. Think about this. Why did God send Jesus to die for our sins? Wasn't it the grace of God? Why did God decide to open up salvation to the Gentiles when for years we were excluded from that? Why did God allow a faithful remnant to survive through the dark ages? Why did God's grace, why was God's grace so merciful to the Anabaptist movement that flourished against a lot of odds and helped them to stand firm in face of relentless enemies? You know, I think it's God's grace that opened up a, a world that we live in today, the North, North American continent, for freedom, religious freedom, and so on. It's God's grace that many of us, if not all of us, were born into Christian families. And 
it's God's grace that even though we were born into Christian families, we realized that we still needed him as our Redeemer and our Savior. And the fact that we are together here this morning in this building at this time, alive, well, and healthy, is another experience of God's grace. It really is. I'd also like to think about this thing a little space. You know, God's grace does eventually run out. Maybe run out isn't the word, but God God does not extend his grace forever. Maybe that's the way I should put it. And the 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 example is given in in the New Testament of Sodom and Gomorrah and how that day of grace did run out at some point. God was extremely gracious and brought Lot and his family out of there. But the time for repentance for Sodom and Gomorrah came to an end. It's it um it's at one point in time, one morning. And there's many things like that. Um, we have little blips of time that we can get things done. You, you, you get it done or you don't. It's forever gone. That's what we mean by little, little spaces. And today I'd say we still have little spaces of grace. And I would like to just think of a few spaces of grace that we have as, uh, as we uh, commence our lives here on this earth. I would say, number one, that our lives are little spaces of grace. James 4.14 says, Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanishes away. So today, if you make some coffee, there ain't many of us do this anymore, but if you take a tea kettle and you set it on the stove and you watch that vapor come out and disappear, what is it, that long maybe? Maybe. And just think about that's your life. That's it. It's here and it's gone. Just like that. Now, vapor, if it is utilized properly, can properly can move a freight train. So it's not like our vapor is worth nothing. The point is, use it and use it quickly because it's just a little space that you have that vapor. Job, as he reflected on his days, he said, it's swifter than a weaver's shuttle. And they are spent without hope. Now, poor Job there, as he sat there, I could certainly understand why he mentioned the latter part of that sentence. But I don't know if you've ever had a uh, had the opportunity to watch a weaver in his shuttle. I was privileged to uh, have a neighbor when I was a small boy that uh, they made rugs out of out of a loom. They had a loom there, and they made these rugs. And I remember watching those girls shoot that shuttle back and forth, and as they were making those rugs, and again, extremely quick. It didn't, it, it did not take very long. Job also says that man that is born of a woman is few of days and full of troubles. He comes forth like a flower, he's cut down, and he fleeth as a shadow and continueth not. And I could read to you many, many verses along those lines. You know, my Burkholder relatives are known to be kind of a long-lived bunch. Um, there's uh, more than one that made it past a hundred. But, you know, in the grand scheme of things, their line of vapor was, is not that much longer than somebody that lives only to be 20 or 30 or 40 years old. And the fact that they lived that long is indeed, I think, a testament to the grace of God. I think whenever we get to eternity and we're there, I don't know how that's going to be. You know, we, we imagine we're going to be visiting with people. And I'm not sure, if, I'm not sure why we think that. 
I'm not sure if that's biblical or not, but I'd assume that we'll maybe know who Methuselah is. So when we talk to Methuselah, and he says, you know, I lived to be 900 and whatever it was, eight, you know, 80 years old or whatever it was. And we said, well, you know, that's something. We only made it to 80. In eternity, will that matter? It just won't matter, will it? I mean, it just won't. And it's, it's going to be that Methuselah is still going to look at his 900 and some years and he's going to say, that was a little space of grace for me. Number two. We have a little space of grace in our opportunities to incorporate God's grace in our lives. And as I mentioned, they're often fleeting little spaces. Ezra realized that the opportunity for the Jews to repent and get it right was not going to be forever. And um, it's the same with us. And I would like to encourage us in 2022, as we stand on the threshold of this year, let's look for opportunities to appropriate the grace of God in our lives. You know, maybe there's a besetting sin or habit that we really would like to get serious about. You know, now's a good time to do that. Yesterday would have been too, but, you know, we don't have yesterday anymore. But, and, and tomorrow's not a good day because you could go out here and you could, um, you could have a, an accident on the way home to today, and that would be the end of your space of grace. Today's a good day. Today is a good day to start something like that. Today is a good day to resolve to take every opportunity to do good to our fellow man. You know, in the moments of temptation, we must make a choice. And many times those come and go very quickly. Will I choose between God or my flesh? It's a little space that we have. So what was, what's the result of considering these little spaces of grace here in um, in Ezra's time. Well, Ezra, as he considered, he said, we need a little reviving. That's what he said in, in, in this verse here that we read. He said, we need a little reviving. And I would, I would suggest that again here on the cusp of this year, we should analyze and consider our tendency to cool off on things that are spiritual. You know, things in our spiritual lives tend to become mundane, routine, and the, the zeal can wear off. It can. As is mentioned here, as we mentioned here in this particular setting, it only took 60 years for these people to lapse right back into the sins of their fathers, even after they realized their fathers had spent 70 years in Babylon because of those problems. Consider the letters written in the book of Revelation. Only a few short years after Jesus had ascended and the church had started, Jesus is warning those churches that, you know, you're cooling off, you're losing your first love, etc. In Matthew 24, it says that because iniquity abounds, the love of many wax cold. So what should our response be to that? Well, Peter tells us that we should gird up the loins of our minds, we should be sober, and we should hope to the end for the grace that is brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God which bringeth salvation has appeared to all men. Now what does this grace do? Let's pay attention to what verse 12 says. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now I think there's something to be learned from the, from the way these two verses read. 
First of all, the grace of God that brings salvation unto us has appeared to everybody. All right, and we understand that we understand what salvation is. The result of that salvation is that this grace also teaches us that we must deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. All right? Now, we could get specific about that. I'm not going to right here this morning. But we have some idea what that is. Only after we do that can we live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now, it's not flipped. It doesn't say that we that the grace of God has appeared, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly, and then deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. The ungodliness goes first before we can live soberly, righteously, and godly. So at this juncture, at this period of time, on January 3, 2022, let's look. Let's look at ourselves and see if there's spots in our lives that could use some reviving. Number two, Ezra did not mess around getting this revival to the end of his fingers, even at great cost. And as I mentioned here in, uh, in Ezra 10, he immediately begins to dissolve these marriages that uh, were, were making the problem, were the breach to the, to the law of God. And I can tell you, that was not easy. That was not easy work at all. In fact, that sounds like very difficult work. But Ezra realized that it needed to be done. And the Bible often admonishes us not to procrastinate when God speaks. In Luke 9.59, we have Jesus telling a man to follow him. But the man said, you know, my dad died, and I'd like to go bury him first. And Jesus said, no. He said, uh, you have to be willing to, to come follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Now, there is a lot. There's a lot we can we could dis- extract from that particular statement from Jesus. Jesus is not saying that we can't bury our fathers, but he's basically saying we have to have our priorities straight. The Hebrew writer says, Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. And that temptation lingers today, doesn't it? We hear the voice of God speaking to us. And we say, well, we'll do it tomorrow. Tomorrow seems like a better day. Felix did that, and to my knowledge... He never experienced the grace of God in his life because he was always looking for that more convenient season. So in 2022, I would like to challenge us. What in my life, what in your life needs to be revived? And this could be, this could be sundry in many things. Um, is there something, is there something standing in my way of being complete in Christ? Uh, am I working too many hours? Should I, should I find a different job so that I can do things that I really know that I should do? Um, I'll just stop there because I don't even know. I, it could be anything. I want you to personalize it. Is there something God's speaking to you and saying, you know, this, this should change? in your life, in my life. And I'd like to just encourage us to take resolve to look at our problems and our challenges seriously, honestly, and deal with them decisively. Number three, any positive change that we have in our hearts needs to be recognized as an act of God's grace in our lives. Chapter 9, verse 8, it it has this very interesting um, uh, thing 
statement. It says, to give us a nail in his holy place. Now, what does this mean to have a nail in God's holy place? Well, we know that nails hold things securely and firmly. The NIV puts it this way, a firm place in his sanctuary. I would like to, I would like to think of it this way. Jesus said in John 10, and I will give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Jude says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his presence with exceeding glory, to the only wise God our Savior be glory, majesty, dominion, and power both now and forever. Hebrews 6.18, By these two immutable things, God's promise and his oath to fulfill that promise, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope which set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that which was, I'm sorry, and which entereth into that within the veil. I would like to suggest that when the grace of God enters into a person's life, and a, and a man reaches for us, and God does his work in our lives, we are firmly secure in God and firmly held in his holy place. And that's where I think this whole thing of a little space of grace. You know, when God speaks to us and he talks to us and he says, this is something that I want Dwight to change. You know, when I change that, I have more securely nailed myself to that holy place. I have. And when I don't, the nail just becomes a little wobblier. And so this thing is a, this thing is a, is an ongoing thing. Uh, when God extends grace to me and he speaks to me and I pound that nail, I'm more secure in God's, in God's holy place. And that's where each of us want to be. He also says that God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. What about this thing of enlightened eyes? In Ezekiel's day, in Ezekiel 12:2, God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, thou dwellest in the midst of a rebellious house, which have eyes to see and see not. They have ears to hear and hear not, for they are a rebellious house. In Jesus' day, to the Jews... Something very similar he said to them. He talks about he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. Second Corinthians 4, but if our gospel be hid, it is to hid to them that are lost in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And again, I could read many verses along those lines. It is only as we continuously, daily, appropriate the grace of God, we'll say yearly in this particular setting and, and um, circumstance that we, we find ourselves in, that we will continue to have lightened eyes. God will, will enlighten our eyes as we need enlightened. But the day we decide that we're not going to follow that light, forget it. We will not continue to have lightened eyes. We will, in, until we are ready to move at what we know today, we cannot expect that we can bypass that and God will continue to lighten our eyes tomorrow. 
Psalm 119.18 says, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Now, we talk of New Year's resolutions, don't we? Now, that sounds like an awful good New Year's resolution. Sit down daily with the Bible and pray that prayer. Open my eyes, that I could see wondrous things out of your out of your law. You know, the Bible is filled with wonderful things. You know that. That's nothing new. And it's the little space of grace that we live in, and it's that period of grace that we take daily when we sit down and we read God's Word and we listen to it and we and we allow God to speak into our hearts that will continuously lighten our eyes. And so I have to ask myself, am I in a position to have my eyes enlightened? Do I have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in me? Am I thirsting for more and deeper communion? Or have I rather allowed the God of this world to blind my eyes? That's possible too. Back to Delvin's comment about whether Paul would have been blind if he would have not received the gospel. That's a new thought to me. But you know, my knee-jerk reaction to that is, I'll bet he would have. I just have a feeling he would have. Um, if he would have, if he would have dug in, if he would have not responded to that, there would have been no Ananias showing up, and he might have been blind the rest of his life. That, that's a that's a that's a point to ponder. Another point to ponder, and um, this now we're getting off into the weeds, but it's an interesting thought. We know that Paul likely had eye problems. We we we. we think he might have from some of the things he said and wrote about. Did those eye problems start with the Damascus Road? Was that always there as a reminder to him of God's grace that he was extended to him? Again, maybe. Maybe it was. Well, this year we have a little space of grace, people. I hope this uh, little sermon has inspired us not to take this for granted. You know, I had to think about how much things have changed in our congregation in the last year. They have changed. And we are we're not being wise if we don't think that things could change again, maybe in ways that we have no idea this coming year. But you know what? God's grace has always been there for all those changes. And it's going to continue to be there, and it's up to us whether we will take that opportunity to appropriate this little space of grace.